Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us. You are watching ADH and I'm Alan Jones. In particular, though, good evening to the mums and dads out there, because with the further increase in interest rates, there will be even greater demand on the mum and dad bank. There is nothing in this interest rate decision or indeed in federal government policy that makes life any easier for the young ones. In many ways, the Reserve Bank now piling on the cost of living pressure have, as I've stated before, created the problem for mums and dads as they see their sons and daughters burdened with cost of living pressures, including potential repayments. It was in November 2021 that the same Reserve Bank and the Governor Philip Lowe said, and I quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024, unquote. Young people in particular saw this as an invitation to get into the housing market. Yet here we are in 12 months with 11 interest rate increases allegedly in the crusade against inflation. But it's only four weeks ago when the same Reserve Bank ended the run of 10 increases in 10 meetings, saying it wanted, quote, additional time to assess the impact of the increase in interest rates to date, unquote, additional time. Surely one month is not enough time to determine the effect of all those 10 previous interest rate increases. Now, if you're on a $500,000 mortgage and thousands and thousands are carrying a far greater mortgage than that, but you'll now pay an extra $70 a month or since the interest rate hikes began, over $1,000 a month more than you were paying 12 months ago. <clears throat> Household revenue and expenses then don't match. Well, economists are calling yesterday's decision cruel, and they're right. The Reserve Bank needs to understand that the inflationary pressures don't come from consumers running around chasing a product and forcing up the price. Yet that's presumably what the Reserve Bank is trying to stop, slowing the economy down by raising interest rates. However, you know and I know the inflation, the more of the Reserve Bank don't know, the inflationary pressures are coming from a lack of supply. Fewer houses, the house price goes up. You can't get workers in the retail sector. The price of labour goes up. Those pressures are not related to demand, but to supply. One can't help coming to the conclusion that the Reserve Bank has its nose out of joint over the Albanese government's review brought down last month for an overhaul of the bank's board and the way it operates. Yesterday's increase indicates to me that that overhaul can't come soon enough. Well, just on Prime Minister Albanese, yes, he should be leading the Australian delegation to the coronation, but isn't it amazing how these avowed Republicans line up for any of the grand functions associated with the monarchy? Far from distancing themselves, they put their running shoes on to be at the front of the queue. Well, the one thing that should be said about the coronation is that the Diamond Jubilee state coach that will carry King Charles, and at that stage, the Queen Consort Camilla, later to become a queen, that will carry them to, to the coronation. The coach was made in Sydney. There's your man on the screen at Manly. I know him well. 
Jim Frecklington. I was regularly invited to witness the immense detail to which he went to construct the carriage, a gift to the late Queen Elizabeth. Jim Frecklington tried, he'd tell me, to encapsulate 100 years of the history of England into the Diamond Jubilee State Coach. There it is. Look at it. Well, keep looking at it. Let me tell you about it. It's the gift to the Queen by Jim Frecklington. He got a bit of help from the government too, but he did most of it on his own. Amazing bloke. Let me tell you, this thing that you're seeing on the screen contains timber sections, and I'll get the boys to leave that up, fashioned into small varnished squares. The timber segments were sourced from 100 historic palaces, ships and buildings, including the door from number 10 Downing Street, Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, the Tower of London and St Paul's Cathedral. All bits of timber and pieces from all of those places. There are also segments from Windsor Castle, the former British yacht Britannia, HMS Endeavour, an original counterweight from Big Ben, part of a Battle of Britain Spitfire, part of a musket ball from the Battle of Waterloo, all encapsulated there that you can see. Other items relate to Sir Isaac Newton, Shakespeare, Charles Darwin, Joseph Banks and Florence Nightingale. I mean, this is staggering in its detail. There are fragments in it of the Royal Box at Ascot. I've seen all of this. He used to show me as he was putting it together. I couldn't believe it. Sir Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic base, one piece of Sir Edmund Hillary's Everest ladders. Jim Frecklington's coach, the Diamond Jubilee State coach, it'll take King Charles to the coronation. Jim Frecklington was once a manager of royal coaches and a coachman to the Queen. But the coach has modern suspension, lighting, heating, electric windows and air conditioning. But the return journey after the coronation, <laughs> that's a different story. It'll be made in the gold state coach, but that was built in 1762. Apparently not a comfortable ride. The late Queen Elizabeth traveled to and from her 1953 coronation in the gold state coach, later recalling it as a horrible and uncomfortable journey. Jim Frecklington told me it's referred to as like being in a ship in rough seas. Queen Victoria refused to ride in it. But isn't that a story? The coach which will carry Charles and Camilla to the coronation was made in Manly, one of the relaxing venues across from Sydney Harbour. Jim Frecklington, we haven't been in touch for a while, but wherever you are, my friend, take a royal bow. By the way, it's also reported that the late Queen in particular and the royal family love their marmalade. Well, Reuben Cooperman is one of Australia's most decorated amateur marmalade makers. He's 69 and his latest batch has been given the regal treatment. He was honoured last month at the World Marmalade Festival and the prize, his marmalade will be a formal gift to King Charles III for his coronation. Now, there are only two rules. It had to be organic and it had to contain no alcohol. And on another touch, the royal chef, Mark Flanagan, has had his work cut out. Last month, he received a word from the royal messenger that King Charles III had settled on his signature coronation dish, a dish that would usher in, he thought, a new chapter for the monarch, reportedly representing an energised and modern crown. The dish, the coronation quiche, <laughs> especially chosen by Charles, and it'll be served, according to the royal website, the dish is a deep quiche 
with a crisp light pastry case and delicate flavours of spinach, broad beans and fresh tarragon. Eat hot or cold with a green salad and boiled new potatoes. Now, unquote, some would say forcing your subjects to spend their Sunday eating boiled new potatoes may not be everybody's idea of Sunday fun. One wag argued that the biggest issue with the quiche is the message it sends. Because quiche, of course, is always a bit of an afterthought. It's a meal that your parents toss together after work using whatever pathetic ingredients are left in the fridge. Coronation quiche. A final word is that according to the Daily Mail newspaper in London, the king's favourite food is spaghetti carbonara, which leaves the royalists wondering why we don't have a coronation carbonara. Look, I don't mean to be harsh, but there are no prizes for ignoring reality. And we don't do that on this program. I've just mentioned that interest rate increases are putting enormous pressure on young people and families, the like of which are not understood by the Albanese government or Treasurer Chalmers, yet they persist with other policies further adding to cost of living pressures. And the worst of these is, of course, the energy policy. Energy prices, energy prices skyrocketing and business passes those on to the consumer, who's you, and then you pay again, not only at the checkout, but on your electricity bill. Yet after a remarkable half century of service, the Liddell coal-fired power plant shut its doors last Friday. Why? But it was a truly remarkable power station. For 52 years, Liddell's four turbines generated power by spinning at a rate of 40 rotations per second. That means over its lifespan, each turbine rotated a whopping 82 billion times. Well, thanks to these turbines, Aussie households, businesses and manufacturers had cheap, reliable power for decades. Emphasised cheap and reliable. Well, unfortunately, no longer. Why? Government determination to get rid of coal and gas. Last Friday, Liddell shut its doors, even though its owner, AGL, didn't have to. That's the point that must be made. They didn't have to. Now, we've already seen the consequences of this. Last weekend was the first weekend without Liddell. Wholesale power prices spiked. On Saturday and Sunday, the average wholesale power price in New South Wales was $192 per megawatt hour. But the weekend before, when Liddell was still operating, wholesale power prices were $82 a megawatt hour. Last weekend, not 82, but 192. This means that power prices rose by over 130% following the closure of Liddell. Now, the worst part about all of this, Liddell didn't have to shut. After Victoria's Hazelwood power station closed in 2017, power prices suddenly rose by 85% in Victoria. Our politicians, including the green activists on both sides, like Malcolm Turnbull, wet the bed. Turnbull began pressuring AGL not to sell the Liddell power station, to his credit, so it could keep running and so New South Wales could avoid similar power price hikes. But AGL, which was hell-bent on shutting the power station, wouldn't budge. I'll tell you why. Even after Alinta Energy turned up with a $250 million offer and a promise, that's for AGL, and a promise to put in a billion dollars to repair the power station and extend its life to 2030, AGL didn't budge. AGL said the power station was to shut, that was it. And it was all about the money, the money. 
You see, back when this deal was on the table, the Australian newspaper reported that, quote, research from analysts at JP Morgan said it was unlikely the deal would ever eventuate due to a number of market and logistical reasons, unquote. Market and logistical reasons. JP Morgan said then in rather convoluted language, extending Liddell would likely have a negative impact on wholesale prices. I'll just pause there. My explanation, negative impact. In other words, if, if we keep the whole show open, the prices, wholesale prices of electricity will go down. And so it went on and therefore the value of the rest of AGL's generation assets, it would support the growth of a competitor in electricity retailing and a separation from Bayswater would be complicated with the two assets intrinsically linked. Now, don't worry about any of that. I'm just quoting that for you. Let me tell you what that means. It was better for AGL to let Liddell Power Station close so that power prices would rise. And AGL could charge more for the power generated by their other assets, including Bayswater Power Station and its wind turbines and solar panels. Short point, we've got companies, companies in this country putting their short-term profits before the energy security of our country, and they're getting away with it. But we can't really blame them, I suppose, can we? If our politicians didn't pass legislation that allowed our power companies to behave in this way, we wouldn't have these issues. I'm sorry, but it's getting to the point whereby, I thought I'd never say this, nationalisation of our power stations may be the only way to keep the lights on when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Someone's got to step in here. It's called corporate greed, and you and I are paying for it. Last week when I was in Queensland, I had the privilege of launching a book called The Courage to Care. Now get ready because this is confronting. Susie Smead is a Holocaust survivor. This is her inspiring memoir of a young Jewish girl swept up, you can see some pictures there, swept up in the Hungarian Holocaust and she dodged death three times. Yet as David Kirkby KC, a former justice of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, has correctly written that Susie has learnt how to love rather than hate. Now the book tells us about the consequences of March 19, 1944, as horrific pictures, look at them, when Susanna Kalmar was just two years old and Nazi tanks rumbled into Budapest to begin what Winston Churchill described as the, quote, greatest, most horrible crime ever committed in the history of the world, unquote. The book tells us that for the following five years, Susie and her family escaped death several times at the hands of both the Germans and the Russians who liberated Hungary in early 1945 before their own form of brutal oppression. Now married as Susie Smead, she eventually found herself safe in Australia in 1949, struggled to adjust to her new life because they were then called refos, before enduring two failed marriages and the death of an infant son. At the age of 40, she met the man who would change her life, John Smead. Susie's now in her 80s teaching future generations about the lessons of the Holocaust, and she's written this extraordinary life story to keep a light shining on this dreadful anti-Semitism. After two successful book launches in Queensland, Susie joins me. Susie, thank you for your time. I mean, as I said at the launch last Thursday, this is a story that has to be told, but it must be difficult for you to tell it. 
Before I do, Alan, thank you so much for having me on your program and coming to the Brisbane launch. As you know, you've always been one of my heroes and I just so appreciate you giving me a hand with this. Not I at love all. you for it. Thank Not you. at all. Thank you. Well, look, how did you manage really? Because the whole story is very emotional, isn't it? Well, it is. And I was very lucky to have a journalist who lived near me called um, Terry Quinn and he suggested we write the book together and he did some amazing research on the book on things that I had no idea about, about the Hungarian Holocaust. I spent a lot of sleepless nights while he found uh, documents about my family, about what happened in Hungary, um, things that um, people have no idea no, about no idea. how we were... No, no idea. Now, um, you say in the book... Uh, sorry, just to, for our viewers... Uh, Susie says in the book, or quotes Brendan Bracken, who was Great Britain's Minister of Information in 1944, and he said, and I quote, I can't exaggerate the brutality of the Germans in Hungary. What the Germans are doing, he was the minister at the time, is nothing less than setting up abattoirs in Europe into which are shepherded thousands of Jews. They're dispatched with the sort of brutal efficiency in which the Prussians delight this is the biggest scandal, he said, in the history of human crime. Susie, what prompted you to revisit all of this, knowing the horrific memories that would be reactivated? Well, it was, uh, I started going to schools. I got involved with a wonderful program called Courage to Care, which visits schools. And that's how it reignited um, my going back into my, my life Fortunately, my father had left me notes and we talked about the Holocaust to some degree. So I had some idea of what to talk about. And then when Terry approached me to write the book, we then went. And I thought it was so important, particularly as I speak at the schools and see the uh, response from uh, the students, um, that many of them have no idea about history, no. let alone about the Holocaust. No. And we must never, never forget what happened so it will never happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you were two years of age when the German tanks rumbled into Budapest, March 19, 1944, and so began this Nazi occupation of Hungary. You would remember little of that, but your mother would have later told you. What did she tell you? Well, we were rounded up in a little town called Papa with her parents while Dad was already taken away in a labour camp. And the very sad thing that happened that we had a lay priest that was trying to smuggle us out of the ghetto with my grandparents. But um, because there were four of us, the guards got squeamish and wouldn't let the, the four of us out. My mother, as you can imagine, did not want to leave her parents behind, but her parents were very adamant that she must leave because she had a young child, me, and, and a husband, and, she, and her parents said, you know, my darling daughter, you must live, you must survive, we've lived our life. And I remember when my mother would retell this story how she would tear up because she loved her parents dearly, as you can imagine, mm. and she never saw them again. And within about a week that we were smuggled out of the ghetto, this entire ghetto, which was in this little town, 
It was it comprised of only four blocks, and into that four blocks they herded 3,500 Jews. Can you imagine that, Alan? Mm. There's almost no sanitation, no food, and, and were beaten and starved and then shipped out to Auschwitz on cattle trucks on a four-day or three-day journey with no food and a little bucket in, in the side of the cattle truck. And 99% of these people went straight to the gas chambers. Yeah. And I don't know if, it, if you've seen pictures of Auschwitz. And there are train tracks that run into the side of Auschwitz. Now, those train tracks were built especially to take the Hungarian Jews straight to the gas chambers. And the um, crematorium were burning 24 hours a day. They couldn't consume the bodies and they had open pits next to them with the bodies burning 24 hours a day. And that was for the Hungarian Jews. I know. And, and, the, and the gas was so lethal and toxic, wasn't it, that death came within, yeah. what, seven seconds? Uh, seven, no, seven minutes. Seven minutes. It was shocking. Yeah, seven minutes, sorry. It was shocking. Yeah. They could hear the people screaming as the gas came down. Awful. Adolf Eichmann is known in history as the architect of the Holocaust. Uh, just going back a bit, and he fired up in Hungary, didn't he, the Nazi killing machine. That already exterminated Absolutely. millions of European Jews, and that began what yes. Churchill described as the most horrible crime ever committed in the whole history of the world. Susie is writing about that crime. It's almost impossible to believe, isn't it, that that horrible crime related to 56 days from May 15 to July 9, That's 1944, right. 437,402 Hungarian Jews were transported to Auschwitz-Birkenau and most were gassed upon arrival. Uh, I mean, thousands were hurled, you write about this in the book, but uh, we ought to know this, naked, weren't they naked into the gas, gas chamber and dead within seven minutes? Yes. And, and, and then they took their hair off and they ripped their te gold teeth out. There were piles of clothes and gold teeth and hair and shoes. I mean, if you've ever been to Auschwitz, you'll see that. It is the most horrifying sight. Well, just go back a bit. Your, your parents were textile. Your dad was a textile merchant in Budapest. But then weeks of That's the right. Nazis' arrival, your father, as you've already alluded to, was in a slave labour camp. And you and your mother were in this little papa. Papa is a little historical town, still there, noted for its architecture. But then your mother... That's and your grandparents, you've told this story too, but I just want to elaborate a little. They were forced into this ghetto prior to your grandparents yes. being deported to Auschwitz where they lost your, their lives. How much of that yes. do you remember? Alan, I honestly don't remember anything of this. I wrote it down, fortunately, before my father died. And also I did hear them talking about it. I think because it was so horrifying, I've wiped it from my mind. But as I told the story, that when I was pulled up one day by a policeman uh, to, to be breathalyzed and he had leather on, I went to pieces and my husband had to put me to bed. So it obviously very much yes. in the back of my psyche yes. that, that it, it triggered something in my mind that I, I, I was yes. just shaking so much that... Yeah. Um, 
John had to put me to bed after that experience. Well, you and your mother were smuggled out by this close family friend, Samu Stern, and you've indicated that they couldn't, he couldn't take four, he could take two. He was the leader of the Central yes. Jewish Council. Why do you think he paid for the guards to let you two go? Well, he was an uncle, well, a so-called uncle. We haven't been able to prove absolute blood relative, but I do remember my mother talking about him as an uncle and Terry, who did the research, found his name on my parents' wedding uh, certificate. Fortunately, I still had it. And I remember my mother talking about him. He was very high up in government and the Nazis always like someone in the Jewish community uh, to keep track of things, and and he was uh, he was appointed, appointed by to, them. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, so then you, you yes. and your father escaped from the labour camp shortly before the Russians yes. took charge, and he then joined you and your mother in Budapest. Now, this is bordering on a miracle. You hid or your family <laughs> in the attic space of your apartment during the day. That's you right. came down at night, and then in late 1944, yes. remembering the Germans had rumbled into Budapest in late. 1944, earlier 1944, but in late 1944, the Russians then encircled Budapest. Now, your parents decided to send you out of the city in the safekeeping of their maids, but then there was heavy fighting in the countryside. And what happened? The maids abandoned you (laughs) to an orphanage. That's right, in a little town called Mishkals. They couldn't get to where they were supposed to take me to their family. And so they thought, at least I would be looked after in this orphanage. And then when we were so-called liberated by the Russians, my parents set out in the cold and half-starved on foot and then fortunately a few days later they're on a train to Mishkos, which was only 100 kilometres from Budapest. But And they were sitting on a train and this woman looked across at my mother and said, you're Jews, aren't you? I thought all the Jews had disappeared from this area. And my mother burst out crying and she said, we're we're going to Mishkals to try and find my little red-headed Susie that's been left in an orphanage there. And the woman got very excited and said, I come from that area, I know that orphanage, and the orphanage was bombed and the children were dispersed to different families. And she said... Was your little red-headed Susie wearing a jumper with Zhuzhika embroidered in the front of a jumper? And my mother started to cry and she said, that's right, yes, that's how we sent her away. And I always think this is almost like a miracle, Alan. And she said, I know someone that took in a little red-headed child like that. But it wasn't quite that that easy to find me because apparently I'd been sent I've been passed around to seven different families in the area because they're all frightened to have a Jewish child. And finally, when my parents tracked me down, I was I was in a um, in a barn in in a farm with a, a peasant lady, and she had me hidden in the farm, and and my bed was the trough where they feed the animals. And uh, when mum and dad found me, they tell the story that most of my hair had fallen out and I was covered in sores and very dirty, but I still had the jumper on. Can you imagine how excited we were when we met each other after all that? 
Just tell us then, uh, I mean, then, well, just to finish that story for our viewers, then three years later, the family were on the run again. Yeah. Uh, the back of a mail truck, I think the, the story says, to Vienna. Yeah, and now, and now here she is. You're looking at her, Susie Smeeds, lives <laughs> in Queensland and presenting to schools. But just, you then went back. Just explain the horror when you actually saw your name on the death list. I don't think you see that, Alan. I don't know if you can see that. Yes. That is the original list with my mother's name, my name, and my grandparents' name on the original list to be sent to Auschwitz. So that's and, a death. And that's a death certificate. That's my death warrant. And this Jewish gentleman at the end of the war had managed to retrieve these original documents. Uh, and, and, you know, they're rounding up people and they've got your name on the list and, and your address. And fortunately he kept and um, we were looking for my grandparents' address and someone told us about this gentleman and so we went to his house and explained what we were looking for and so he brought out this great pile of documents with our names on it and um, we found my grandparents' address on, on that list and my name on that list to well, be sent to our death. Amazing. Well, there you are. And There's I, the I just a little, little corollary to that. I said to the gentleman, um, these documents should be kept in a very special place. And then when I visited Yed Vashem a few years ago, he'd obviously sent the documents to Yed Vashem because the curator then gave me that copy. So I was very happy that it was in amazing. safekeeping. It's an amazing story. This is a simple story, but a complicated and emotional and traumatic story about how the Holocaust inspired this lady you can see on your screen to write a memoir about her experiences during both war and peace. She's called the book, The Courage to Care. She's no longer a little Jewish girl caught up in the horrors of the Hungarian <laughs> Holocaust. She escaped death three times during one of the most extraordinary periods of World War II. It is a compelling story. It's published by Conacourt. Just go to the store.adh.tv and you can buy your copy. .adh.tv and you can buy your copy. It's a hell of a read. The Courage to Care by Susie Smead. Thank you, Susie. You're entitled to good health and much happiness. And I hope we catch up again soon. Love you, Alan. And thank you so much for all your help. You're a wonderful, wonderful man. Thank you, Susie. Thank love you, you, love you too. And all the best to John. There she is. A hell of a story. Okay. The Courage thank to Care you. by Susie Smead. I'll speak to Peggy Grandy in America shortly about the literally terrifying prospect of Joe Biden running for a second term. I'll look at that shortly. But I continue to fail to understand why Donald Trump, who is gathering tremendous support within the Republican Party, notwithstanding relentless attacks upon him, I have difficulty understanding, and I've been around a bit, why a bloke who's achieved what he has achieved and without a script speaks the language of the everyday man and knows a heap, I can't understand why there isn't universal recognition that Trump is the hope of the Western world. When he was president, we didn't hear from Putin or Xi or the rocket man. Now they've run amok and we in the West are reduced to the status of just being bystanders. Now, in spite of these attacks, Donald Trump continues to loom large in America. To me, he's a breath of fresh air and more importantly, can afford to be politically brave. Thankfully, he's independently wealthy 
and therefore doesn't need to bow down to donors or puppet masters or anyone else. He just says it as he sees it. Two days ago, he addressed a rally in Manchester, New Hampshire. He was on fire. Admittedly, for a while, the Trump comeback looked shaky, especially with the mainstream media backing relentlessly Ron DeSantis. But ever since the disgraceful and hyper-partisan indictment of Trump by the George Soros-backed District Attorney of Manhattan, this fellow Bragg, the Trump 2024 campaign has gained massive momentum. Trump will be hard to beat in the Republican primaries. And then, if he gets the Republican nomination for the presidency, Biden will surely, because he can't barely speak, Biden will surely be in trouble. But more of that shortly in relation to Biden. But the problem, as always, isn't the bumbling Biden. It's the people around him who are ideologically dangerous. Those who pull the strings of the Democratic Party are cunning. Now, this Trump, at this rally, Trump went hard on this nonsensical trend of allowing biological men to compete in women's sport. Now, as you know, they're physically stronger, biologically different. But everyone's supposed to be okay with them competing alongside women and entering their change rooms. Well, not only is it unfair, but it puts women at risk and it's unsafe. Well, Trump took a question from the crowd about how to ensure the protection of women. His reply was simple. I quote, vote for Trump. That's how you do it. He went on, it is the craziest thing. So many people hear it and they can't even believe the subject. He's right, isn't he? The next question was on the economy and it's collapsed under the Biden administration. His answer is one that I've been saying for years in relation to Australia's economy, and that is energy prices. Trump said, and I quote, when you reduce, so you're listing Bowen and you nincompoops in Canberra. Trump said, when you reduce the price of energy, everything else will come down. He said, the way our country is going, we're going into a 1925 type depression. We're going to bring energy down, he said. We're going to get interest rates down. We're going to get back to a good life, unquote. Now, Trump's not stupid. He is a smart businessman turned politician. Asked about the radical left Democrats and their agenda to defund the police. Trump replied, never mind just defund them. The Democrats hate the police. Trump replied, you're talking to the right person. I gave billions and billions of ex-military equipment to the police. It was sitting in storage drawing dust. We're going to take care of our police. Our police can take control of our cities if you let them do their jobs, unquote. He went on, we can't let them be afraid that if they use one bad word, their life is ruined. These are great American patriots. They used to do a job, but now they're not allowed. We're going to help fund them, not defund them, unquote. How do you beat that answer? Asked by an audience member about election integrity, Trump interjected and said, you mean lack of integrity? But his answer began with saying, quote, we need to work out what happened in 2020. Many were saying to me, sir, put it in the background. Now he said, Trump said, you can't forget because if you forget, they'll do it again. He said, we have to win and we have to win big. We have to swamp them. To be honest, he said, we did so well last time that I thought we swamped them then, but they use COVID to cheat, unquote. Trump's got guts. He then touched on something that I have talked about over and over again, and that is that elections should be on one day, not going on for weeks and weeks, all this postal and pre-polling stuff. Trump said at that rally, quote, we need same day voter ID, every vote cast, we should have same day voting, not voting lasting for 44 days. He said, people have to have confidence in elections. 
The problem is we've got a lot of people without courage, and that includes judges. He said they didn't have courage to do what should have been done, unquote. And then this, we have to win like never before. We have to watch those polling places. They're thugs in many cases, throwing our people out of the room. We have to have courage, and if we don't have courage, we won't have a country, unquote. I'm sorry, I can't complain with any of the above. What does this matter though for us, for Australian viewers? The final word to Trump, he said, other countries need a strong America, not just us. Isn't that true? We're tied at the hip with the United States of America, whether we like it or not. We've got the ANZUS agreement, now we've got AUKUS. Australia benefits from a strong America. It's unfashionable to say it, but in Trump, we have a strong leader in a world where leadership weakness has plunged the West into all sorts of trouble. Now, for those who legitimately fear for the future of the Western democracies because of the crisis in political leadership, the announcement that Joe Biden is running for re-election in 2024 is a legitimate source of alarm. Biden says he wants to finish the job. The equally incompetent Kamala Harris will be again his running mate. Biden's already the oldest man to ever serve as president. Should he win next year's election, he would be 86 at the end of his second term. An NBC News poll has found 70% of Americans, including 51% of the Democrats, believe he shouldn't run. 69% of all respondents who said he shouldn't run cited concerns over his age. Biden's approval ratings haven't topped 50% for more than a year and a half. Equally frightening though, is the fact that the Biden announcement puts Kamala Harris at 58 years of age, a heartbeat away from the presidency. And she has been constantly ridiculed for alleged incompetence. But it's even worse than that. Duplicitousness is dishonesty. Surely there's something duplicitous about this. Fox News host in America, Sean Hannity, has shown on Fox News, President Biden getting caught with the reporter's cheat sheet with crib notes detailing the reporter's questions prior to calling on that same reporter during a press conference at the White House Rose Garden. Just here is Sean Hannity. Now, of course, Joe also loves a good cheat sheet and a compliant media mob. Take a look at your screen. Now, this is a picture of a note card that Biden was holding yesterday at a press conference entitled Reporter Q&A with the subheadline question number one, followed by a reporter's name, her picture, and where she works, the LA Times, and the card also detailed the exact question she wanted to ask. It was about semiconductor manufacturing, and right on cue, Biden called on the LA Times reporter for the first question, and guess what she asked about? Semiconductor manufacturing. But now the L.A. Times and the Biden White House, they're denying that there was any collusion at all whatsoever. That's not believable, is it? It's not believable. Let's begin, Peggy. Peggy Grandy, as we always do from America. Peggy, what on earth do we make of this? Biden's got a note card at a press conference entitled Reporter Q&A with a subheadline, question one, followed by a reporter's name, her picture and where she works, the L.A. Times. The card details the exact question she wanted to ask about semiconductor manufacturing. And right on cue, Biden calls on the LA Times reporter for the first question, and she asks about semiconductor manufacturing. What do we make of this, Peggy? 
Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. And what a week is right. And, you know, Joe Biden comes out with this re-election announcement to finish the job. I'm wondering what job he's wanting to finish. Is it ruining America? Is it endangering the world? He's doing a great job at that. And then Kamala Harris is not like fine wine and won't age well over time. Her poll numbers are lower and worse than his, which is hard to believe. But to your point about the the White House and the media, the mainstream media being in collusion. Can you imagine if it was the other way around and Donald Trump was caught with a note card detailing a question he was going to take from Fox News? I mean, there would be outrage. A good press secretary prepares the president of the United States for the questions that they will be receiving. Not the exact questions, but the type of questions. They know what the press corps is writing about, tweeting about, and asking about. And a good press corps would not insult and belittle themselves in this way to be cooperative with such collusion. It's obvious everybody knows it and they have the audacity to tell us that we don't see what we see with our own eyes. Yeah. Just like they're saying the border Absolutely. is not open, crime is not uh, on the rise and you know inflation is not uh, harming the American people. It's just, we know it, what we see and feel and it's not what they're saying to no, us. No, I mean look, so look let's, let's just look at this Sean Hannity thing again because uh, this defied, Peggy and I have been in these games with politicians for a long, long time. I've never, ever known anything like this. Let's just have a look at that Sean Hannity clip again. Now, of course, Joe also loves a good cheat sheet and a compliant media mob. Take a look at your screen. Now, this is a picture of a note card that Biden was holding yesterday at a press conference entitled Reporter Q&A with the subheadline question number one. Followed by a reporter's name, her picture, and where she works, the LA Times. And the card also detailed the exact question she wanted to ask. It was about semiconductor manufacturing. And right on cue, Biden called on the LA Times reporter for the first question. And guess what she asked about? Semiconductor manufacturing. But now the LA Times and the Biden White House, they're denying that there was any collusion at all whatsoever. Peggy, that denial, I mean, how the hell can you get away with a denial when there is photographic evidence? It's insane. And again, they think we will just believe what they say, not what we see. Unfortunately, I think this is probably not the first time this has been done. It's probably been done a lot. And there were probably more than question one listed on his cheat sheet. We know that the two are in bed. We saw at the last um, White House Correspondents' Dinner over the weekend when Biden referenced his reelection, the entire media mob reacted with a, a standing ovation practically of applause. So we know that they're rooting for him, they're polling for him, and they're gonna do everything they can to keep him back in the White Absolutely. House. They should be ashamed of themselves for not calling this for what it is. This is lying from the White House podium and we've seen it time and time Absolutely. again. Absolutely, uh, Senator Marco Rubio was right when he said Biden has the media in his pocket. Peggy, to what extent does the voting public believe that the bulk of the media is an extension of the Biden press office. I mean, this is not journalism, this is teamwork. And Biden and the media mob seem to be operating as one unit. Um, do the public understand this, do you think? 
Well, teamwork is a great word for it. And I think that finally they do. I mean, we've seen time after time when Trump has been accused of something that that story has unraveled. There's never an apology. There's never a retraction. There's just they move on and hope that the American public won't remember it. I think the American people are now paying attention and realizing that they're in it just for one team. And that team is the Democratic Party. And that is not serving well the interests of the American people. So I believe that people are finally seeing it for what it is. Mm. Approval ratings of the mainstream media is historically low, as is trust in this White House. Mm. I mean, you made the point, uh, just repeating, Peggy's made that point. If this was the Trump White House, and what Trump calls fake news, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, New York Times, they would have a total meltdown. But because Biden's a Democrat, it's just, oh, well, business as usual. Peggy, is it any wonder that Americans no longer trust the media? It's not surprising at all. They've given us every reason to distrust them, and they are continuing to do that in collusion with this White House. Will Will, Trump, will Biden get to next November? I mean, how on earth could he run again a campaign from his basement, hide, and is he going to get away with it? I mean, again, at the White House, this bloke had his annual bring your children to work day. This is for staff, bring your children to work. And he was escorted to the White House, lovely touch, uh, the White House lawn by children dressed as Secret Service agents, great for the kids. And he did a half hour, half hour question and answer session where he revealed that his favourite colour was blue his parents were his biggest inspiration and that he has a croissant with scrambled eggs and bacon for breakfast. Many Americans would wonder how he actually could even remember what he had for breakfast. Anyway, one of the children asked him which country he had last visited. Hmm? Have a look at this. The last country I've traveled, I'm thinking once with the last one I was in. I, I've, I've been to 89, I met with 89 heads of state so far. So uh, I'm trying to think, what was the last, where was the last place I was? It's hard to keep track. Um, I was, I, I mean, yeah, you're right, Ireland. That's where it was. How'd you know that? <laughs> oh, Peggy, what on earth? I mean, only 13 days previous to that meeting with the children, he'd been in Ireland. And yet when he's asked the question, which country he last visited, he said, Oh, I'm trying to think what was the last place. One of the kids then, as you heard, reminded him it was Ireland. And he asked the child, how did you know that? Peggy, this is bizarre. It's not laughable. It would be it would be funny and, you know, embarrassing if it wasn't so dangerous. And it would be one thing to have this nice press event with these children if he was actually doing press events with people asking him real questions. And to your earlier point about running a campaign from his basement, I anticipate that he will be able to run a very restful instead of rigorous campaign. He's got the mainstream media polling for him. Apparently, in the last two years, he has only done four events before 10 o'clock in the morning. So this is not somebody that we expect to see out on the campaign trail a lot. I expect that this will be a campaign by proxy. He'll have others saying what great things he's done for the country. We look at even his announcement rollout. It wasn't a big, highly attended event. What was it? A video that had been highly edited, highly doctored, probably took a dozen takes to get right. And they released it by video because they couldn't even trust him to stand up and announce properly that he was running for mm. president of the United States, mm. unlike announcing last time that he was running for senator from Delaware. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he couldn't even recall where his grandchildren lived. He said, I left somebody out. I think I said five, six. Uh, I've got one in New York, two in Philadelphia, 
Or is it three? I don't know. You confuse me. And then Peggy, he can't spell eight. Viewers, I mean, this is serious. This is the leader of the free world who wants another go when the free world's in disarray. The free world's being dominated by Putin and Xi and the rocket man, simply because I understand the fundamental weakness of this person. Have a look at this. He can't spell the word eight. But you have, we have a thousand billionaires in America. You know the average tax rate they pay? Eight, E-I-G-H percent. Eight percent. Stop it. <laughs> you can't stop it. I mean, well, in the comments, <laughs> I mean, this black belong- from the kids about the grandchildren I mean, is also ironic considering the timing this week when his son Hunter Biden is in Arkansas fighting a child support payment. There's DNA proof that Joe Biden actually has another granddaughter that he fails to acknowledge or mention. And Hunter Biden refuses to pay as much child support. And so he's going to court for it. He is going to open the genie on mm. uh, release the genie out of the bottle. And he's not going to be, be able to put it back in and may regret fighting this child support payment for a child he knows is his in Arkansas. So it's interesting that Joe Biden couldn't answer that question yeah. when he has another granddaughter he knows about and, that he uh, refuses to acknowledge. I mean, the bloke belongs in a house, but it's not the White House. It's a house for the age. And I'm telling you, there's every doubt he won't even get to next year. What's Arnold Schwarzenegger up to when he says if Donald Trump gets the US Republican nomination, the Democrats will win. And he says there's no way Donald Trump could win another presidential election. And Donald Trump's lead amongst Republican contenders is anywhere from 20 to 46 percentage points. What's Schwarzenegger up on? Well, I think he's speaking for the Democrats who actually support the fact that Trump is supposedly going to be the nominee. They think that they can beat him. But what they underestimate is that this time around, Joe Biden actually has a record to run on, not just rhetoric. And so when you look at the record of Joe Biden, if indeed he goes up against Donald Trump, it will be very different. It won't be hyperbole and it won't be speculation as him being the great unifier and making America you know, better than ever. Um, he has a record that he's going to have to defend. And it's terrible on China, on the border, on inflation. Every metric has gone down in the wrong way under Joe Biden. And to the flip side of that, Donald Trump has policies and a record that he can run on as well. And it's one that benefited the American people and made the world stronger. Well, just before you go, Peggy, what a quick word on the nomination or the intended nomination of Robert Kennedy, the son of the assassinated 1968 Democratic candidate, Robert Kennedy. Um, what kind of traction has that got? Well, the Democrats' heads are spinning over it because he just announced and he's already polling at almost 20%. So against an incumbent president, it shows that a good population of the Democrats want a different Democrat to run and win in the future. So I think he's a real threat and somebody to watch. And I think that people are very worried, probably justifiably, about him jumping into this race. Yes, I mean, the Uncle Ted Kennedy unsuccessfully attempted to topple President Jimmy Carter in 1980, and that led to your man, Ronald Reagan, winning a landslide victory. I mean, the contrast here is, is extraordinary, isn't it, between the seasoned and tanned Kennedy, who's eloquent and fit at 69, and the ageing Biden, who falls upstairs and couldn't, as we just saw, spell the word eight. I should say here that Robert Kennedy, and we should just show this to you, his speech is strained... Robert Kennedy. Here he is after announcing his candidature. 
What is your family like? Do they agree with everything that you say and do? They'd probably vote for me if I ran for president. Yeah, well, I have siblings who will vote for me as well, but I have a big family and many of them will not. The condition there is called spasmodic dysphonia. It's a condition that affects the voice box. It's not life-threatening. His cousin, Caroline Kennedy, is the daughter of President Kennedy, and she's now the US ambassador to Australia. This man, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., as I said, is the son of Robert Kennedy, who was seeking the Democratic nomination for the 1968 presidential election. And he just won the California primary against all odds, and then he was assassinated. Just quickly, Peggy, finally, Kennedy's against the war in Ukraine, even though his son is serving there voluntarily. He says it's not in America's national interest to do something that could involve America in a nuclear exchange. Mainstream media is obsessed with his personal view on vaccines, but the ordinary voter there doesn't seem to care if someone says vaccines should be voluntary. Just on the policy front, is Kennedy on the right, uh, issuing the right messages? Well, he's certainly out of step with the progressive left, but I think there's a lot more moderate Democrats that probably would relate to him. And I think they are fearing him because to your point, he actually gave an interview with ABC News last week that was talking about these vaccine mandates and how he was against it. ABC News actually edited that part of his interview out and gave a little disclaimer at the beginning saying that his comments had been disproved by science, whatever that is. And so they're already editing his comments. They're afraid of his candidacy. Mm, interesting stuff. Look, we'll leave it there. We'll talk to you next week. I think this Robert Kennedy uh, determination to offer himself as the Democratic candidate needs some very serious thought. As I said earlier, how do we know that Joe Biden will get to next November. Great to talk to you, Peggy, and we'll talk again next week. There she is, wonderful, isn't she? Thank Articulate you, and informed. Peggy Grandy in America. Well, before we go, the real agenda of the Labor Party is unfolding. Beware the push to reduce the voting age to 16 and let thousands and thousands of migrants into the country in the certain hope that the migrants and the 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, will thank Labor for their generous spirit and vote for them. You see, that's why political parties dish out your money and rack up debt. It's called buying votes. The tactic failed the Perrottet government in New South Wales. It'll fail the Albanese government, so long as we wake up. Mark my words, you've got the finance minister, Katie Gallagher, trying to make you believe that in next week's budget, the government will, quote, claw back billions of dollars, unquote. And as she says, we'll continue to hunt for savings. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, let's have a look at one example, hunting for savings. The Prime Minister was heckled last Sunday as he tried to hold a press conference in Hobart about his plan to throw $240 million of your money into a new AFL stadium, a football stadium in Hobart. Here was Albo growing hairs rapidly on his chest, big brother government in Canberra, helping to pave the way for Tasmania, whom I love, to enter the AFL. Here we are in debt, no money for cost of living relief, but Albo gives a Hobart Stadium $240 million. The protesters disrupted proceedings with banners and signs which said, we want affordable housing, not a stadium. Another one said, priorities, Albo, please. But Albo argued the protesters were part of our great democracy. Well, let's have a look at that great democracy in Tasmania where Albo has chucked another $240 million. Tasmania's population of 571,000 you've got to say it slowly, 571,000, is half the size of Adelaide. The whole of Tasmania, half the size of Adelaide. Now remember Adelaide, as you know, is not South Australia. Adelaide's just Adelaide. 
population, twice that of the whole of Tasmania. But Tasmania has five members in Canberra in the House of Representatives, 12, I repeat, 12 in the Senate. It's got 25 members in the Tasmanian government's lower house. It's got 15 members in the Tasmanian government's upper house. So forgetting local government for a moment, Tasmania has 60 members of parliament in the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Tasmanian lower house and upper house. 60. That averages a member of parliament for every 9,500 Tasmanians. This must be the democracy that Alba was talking about. At the last federal election, the average size of an electorate was 113,000. Tasmania have an MP for every 9,500 men, women and children. And then on top of that, 29 local government authorities. And the finance minister says the federal government's trying to claw back billions of dollars. Yet there are also 29 local government areas in Tasmania on top of 60 members of parliament with a Tasmanian population of a piddling 571,000. You can drive around the state, the territory, Tasmania, whatever you call it, in a day. The premier down there is on over 300,000, a minister on about 250. The mayor of Launceston, population 87,000, he's on over 120 grand. Just think of the cost of Albo's so-called democracy. But you see, Tasmanians are not silly. They see the gravy train everywhere. In the last local government census, there were 263 councillor vacancies for local government positions, 263. There were 482 candidates. There were 29 mayoral vacancies, but there were 91 candidates. There were 29 deputy mayoral vacancies. There were 143 candidates. You see, everyone wants a ticket on the gravy train. If Albo thinks the protesters opposing $240 million for an Australian Rules Stadium in Hobart were about democracy at work, how does he describe the so-called democracy of Tasmania? With a population of 571,000, 60 members of parliament, state and federal, 60, one for every 9,500, man, woman and child, and 29 local government areas where you can rake in up to $120,000 for being a mayor. Now, I've got nothing at all against Tasmania or Tasmanians. But if the Albanese government is talking about waste, he ought to be saying to the Tasmanian government, well, you're hopelessly overrepresented with politicians. Cut some of that stuff back before you start asking for another $240 million from the taxpayer. Well, that's it from me tonight and for this week. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. And of course, all our programs are on the ADH app. And don't miss Mark Stein, Tuesday to Friday at five o'clock. You'll love him. Plenty of content here. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. I'll see you next week. Until then, thank you for watching and good night.